Welcome to Pixel Pizza. Did she say pizza? Your ultimate source for chiptunes, video game talk, and pepperoni. Delivered to you from Los Angeles and into the digital cyberspace of the 2020s. Pizza power! That's right, when super giant pizza. I want a large, thick crust with double cheese, ham, pepperoni. Hey, where's my pizza? Pizza time. Welcome back to Pixel Pizza. You just listened to the track Glorious Purpose from our chiptune artist of the week, Captain Groovatron. And we are here with our 50th full episode of the show. Very exciting. We did have one clip show, which wasn't original content, so I'm not counting that. But yes, we've had 50 unique guests. It's been a lot of fun this year, and I'm excited to, for 50 more. And we are continuing on that great track with today's guest. She is the managing editor, editor at Fanbyte, an artist in residence at NYU, the editor 
of the book Video Games for Humans and the author of the upcoming book, Land Party. This is Merritt Kay. How are you doing, Merritt? Hi. Um, yeah, I'm doing really good. Thanks for having me. And uh, congrats on, uh, on 50 episodes. Most podcasts, I feel like, uh, don't get quite that far. <laughs> yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, I'm sure you know you've done plenty of podcasts. Is finding people each week, finding content. It's perseverance. Yeah, sure. I mean, definitely it, it shows. Yeah, it, it's, it's perseverance, right? Because a lot of people will be like, ah, it's easy. I'll start a show. And then they go for a few episodes and lose interest. But um, but yeah, congrats. And I hope, yeah, you do another 50. That would be very cool. Thank you. So I like to start off my show by asking, when in your life did you know you wanted to be involved in games? Yeah. Um, wow, that is a good question. Um, I grew up, so my family, we had a we had a Super Nintendo in our house. So um, my sister and I and our friends played a lot of Mario Kart and Super Mario World and the kind of, you know, like the classics, but also some, some of the duds as well, just because you didn't really know at the time if something was going to be good or not. There were not really any, uh, I mean, there were no sites you could go on to just read reviews. So it was kind of all over the place. And um, yeah, I guess I was fascinated by by games even back then, uh, like really early on. The idea that there could be like this world inside of a computer screen or a TV screen was really fascinating to me. And um, our family also got a a desktop computer in the early mid nineties. And that also just really like, I think captured my imagination in a lot of ways of just like, wow, there's no, you can do so many things with this thing called a computer. Like, um, I think I was just born at a time, like sort of a good time for that stuff because, uh, you know, you're getting multimedia computers for becoming more of a consumer item. Um, things like the Super Nintendo and then the Nintendo 64, that era, there was a lot of really exciting experimentation going on. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was just really fascinated by that stuff. And I think, um, it wasn't something that I sort of like set out to do really. Um, I didn't go to school to, to work on or in or, or around games. And there have been times in my life where I just like have not been involved in it at all or haven't even touched games. Um, but I guess it's just something that I just kept kind of coming back to. Mm -hmm. And I happen to be at a point right now where I'm uh, doing a lot of stuff that have to do with games. So, yeah. That's really cool. Mario World was my first game, too. And yeah, oh, nice. N64 era late Super Nintendo. So mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. a very cool introduction. So, yeah, I know you also have made your own games in the past. And when I read some interviews about it, you were saying a lot of, you know, the themes of the games you've worked on have to do with, you know, care and comfort and showing relationships about caring in games. And I was wondering uh, what's like a game, a recent game or an old game where you felt like it displayed care in a meaningful way that kind of resonated with you? God, that is a really good question. Um, I'm trying to think back because um, I'll be honest, I've taken a, a bit of a step back from playing a lot of games lately um, because I've just been working on so many things that I just haven't had a ton of time. Sure. But um, yeah, I mean, that's something that like has, I feel like, you know, when I was making those kinds of games for very, very small games, like interactive fiction and then like interactive art type stuff, um, that wasn't as much of a thing. Um, but I feel like that has changed a lot. Uh, there, there have been a lot of games that are explicitly about that kind of thing now. Um, there's one and the name is escaping me right now, but it's a, it, it's like you're, kind of sending letters to people, but other oh. players read those letters. Yes, I don't you know remember the name about? either, but I know <laughs> what you're talking about. Yeah, that seems to me like something that is like really explicitly doing that, um, which is really cool. There's, you know, there's tons of um, visual novels and stuff now that are doing more of that kind of thing. 
Um, even just like narrative games, I feel like I've gotten better at this stuff too. Like uh, one of my favorite games in the last couple of years is uh, Wildermyth. And that is, you know, it's like about combat. It's like a tactical RPG, but there's also all these like narrative elements. And I feel like a pretty big part of a lot of the the kind of downtime stories that that game tells are about people um, caring for one another, whether that's like cooking or um, any kind of like gesture like that, or or these sort of interactions that can happen between people um, that aren't just like fighting or aren't competition. Uh, so yeah, like it's it's almost like those sorts of themes are a lot. Um, you know, more common than they used to be. Oh, another game um, that uh, I think is out of early access now is Cloud Gardens, which is a game about growing plants. Ooh. Um, it's really cool. It's you're growing plants in these sort of lo-fi environments on this kind of like detritus, this sort of human-built environment, you're growing plants up and around them. And uh, so... Yeah, things have changed kind of a lot since I was doing. I feel like sort of the stuff that I, I was doing back then has kind of been like superseded in a way because there is so much cool work being done now uh, that you don't really have to look that far. I mean, you, you can just go on Steam and find, you know, amazing uh, indie games that are, are are doing all these verbs that for a long time weren't really part of the vocabulary of game design. Absolutely. It's been so great to see just a rise in the variety of subject matter you see in games. And it's really been, yeah, great to have all different kinds of experiences and positive ones, not just ones for violence. Uh, but yeah, I haven't heard of those games. I definitely have to check them out after this. So I guess another question sort of in a similar area is uh, what about what did making games yourself teach you about you know telling gaming stories and uh you know getting involved with gaming history like you are now yeah um i think before you try to make any anything any kind of, of game you sort of have a different perspective on things like i think it, once you try to sort of like learn even the basics of of how a game is put together so like assets code all of that stuff you're always going to be getting a partial view um you're interacting with something in not like a surface way because you can still have a deep understanding of a, a game without knowing how it's put together but like i think that definitely enriches uh, people's perspectives to be able to sort of have a sense of like how a space in a game is put together or how a, an interaction or a mechanic and from you know a high level design perspective to a really granular coding perspective um, I don't think it's reasonable to expect that anyone who writes about games is going to know all that stuff but I think the more you learn about it, the better your insights will get. And um, it, it's kind of funny, too, to like when you start learning how to make games, you start seeing how the tools that exist for making things shape the kinds of things that get made. So, for example, there historically over the last like 20 years um, have been pretty good tools for making 2D platformers first-person shooters, uh, visual novels, but, you know, certain genres, there are, there are platforms and tools that exist to make that kind of game. So you start to see how, like, okay, these technical affordances and limitations are, shape the kinds of things that, that happen, because if you want to make something that there isn't sort of a, a readily available tool for, um, like RPG is another huge one. RPG Maker, obviously, has been a very big, um, a big, sort of consumer tool. Um, if you want to make something that doesn't fit into one of those genres, like you start to understand like, oh, it's not just because, you know, people are lazy or, or they don't have an imagination. It's because 
it's easier to make certain things. And there's sort of a process of path dependence that happens where people put work into making a certain kind of thing that pops off. And then there are more tools available and more resources for making more of that thing. So learning that, that stuff and trying your hand at it, um, you can get a better appreciation, I would say, for uh, why certain choices are being made why you're seeing the kind of things that you do. And um, yeah, I think, you know, any any kind of critic or anyone who, who is interested in that process can benefit even from not like trying to make something huge or even something that we're gonna release, but just messing around with some tools. I think it could be really illuminating. Absolutely, yeah. I think I did some work uh, on short films and it totally changed the way I look at movies when I watch them. Mm. And yeah, I took a few uh, Unity classes and that definitely had an impact on the way I play games. So there's a lot to be said for seeing what it's like making something. Right, yeah, yeah. So also about your book, you edited and curated video games for humans. What are some of the things with like twine gaming have you seen recently or uh, what sort of themes from the book have you seen that are continuing to be important today? Yeah, wow. Um, it's funny like looking back at that book because it feels like a totally different world at this point. Mm. Um, I think like to be honest, I haven't kept up with with a lot of uh, twine developments over the past, you know, six or seven years since that book came out. I think it's even longer than that, actually. Um, but you know, um, when that book came out, sites like Itch.io were I never had a pronounce that Itch.io, Itch.io. I think it was um, Itch.io, but yeah, it's, yeah, there's no definitive. Um, you know, the, those sorts of uh, platforms were still kind of in their infancy. Uh, they they existed, but they they have just exploded so so much. They are they're enormous at this point. And um, obviously, the you know the way that probably most people get games, at least most you know PC gaming people, is still Steam. And that's, you know, that's fine. Um, but there are all of these alternate platforms now that afford people a lot of control over, over like the way that their work is presented, over, uh, you know, every aspect of, of that. Um, and that have really, you know, good deals in terms of revenue shares and, and that kind of stuff. And so I feel like the, that field is just kind of like really blown up, like in a, in a good way. There's just so much happening now that it's really impossible to keep track of it all. Um, and, and not just, you know, twine stuff, but, um, you know, visual novels, um, things like Pico 8 games. Oh, yeah. Uh, even Unity has become a lot more accessible. There's just like so much stuff. And, um, Sometimes I'll just like go to itch and just like sort of like browse through stuff and I think, wow, people are making really amazing things. And I don't think that, you know, that, that book really had much to do with that. I think that book documented like a, an interesting kind of slice of time, but uh, there are, there are so many people making so many different interesting things um, that it's been really great to see that, like, you know, this become something that more people feel like they can do. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's wildly hard to keep up with. With it, just feels like there's constantly exploding new stuff on itch on Steam. But I think going back to your previous point, you know, some of the stuff that was happening in Twine earlier were just like crazy ideas that couldn't be made into like a more interactive game for lack of a better word because the tools weren't there and now mm -hmm. the tools are there to make something that doesn't fit into like the existing boxes 
of yeah, right. what we typically have. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I think it is. There are more flexible tools available now. Um, there were free tools available. Um, so yeah, it's like it's it's much easier to do this stuff than it was even you know like ten years ago. Yeah, it's it's time. Just progress is wild. So. Also, something you've been working on recently is your series on YouTube called Forgotten Worlds, where you go over, you know, pieces of uh, 90s gaming community and culture and things that have been totally lost to time. Uh, or at least that's how I would describe it. How would you describe it? Yeah, um, it is. I guess what I try to focus it on is communities that have kind of been lost time. So there are a lot of, of YouTube shows and a lot of articles and, and even books and things kind of just about, um, you know, like things or products that, uh, that people maybe don't remember super well. And I didn't want to just do that because I feel like there is so much of that already. Other people are doing it so well uh, that I wouldn't really be adding anything. So what I wanted to do with that was to talk about like the ways that these things created relationships or that they created ways of interacting. And some of those ways of interacting don't really exist anymore. But maybe they do in like certain niche spaces, but but things have just, you know, technology has changed or the way that society is organized around technology has changed or whatever. But um, just thinking about like the, the sort of experiences behind this stuff and the interactions that it generated rather than just like, hey, to remember, um, you know, remember, uh, uh, Instance Revolution, which still exists, obviously, or or something like, or like, hey, remember Bonsai Buddies or whatever? Like, yeah, I do. Um, where does that conversation go from there? Like, is, are we just sort of reminiscing? Because that can be fun. Uh, but yeah, I wanted it to sort of be like, hey, can we learn anything from these kind of obsolete forms of technology and modes of interaction that don't really exist anymore? Um, and that series is sort of on hiatus right now just because it was um, being, uh, it was partly a fanbite thing and that sort of isn't happening now. So I would love to do more of that kind of stuff. Also, I want to shout out the artist Baru, who is just incredible. I feel like her work is sort of the main reason why people like those videos because they do have this beautiful watercolor kind of collage uh style and um you know she just did really incredible uh work on those there's three right now there's the one on dance dance revolution and, and how that interacted with foreign culture there's one on um on muds as like the precursor to mmo rpgs and then there's one on um on emulation and um, and sort of browsing the internet in the 2000s, early 2000s and late 90s and, and how emulation kind of uh, worked during that period when it was still in like a pretty nascent time. Yeah, that one brought me back to, I used to go to summer camp uh, when I was a kid, like day camp before mm -hmm. I even went to sleepaway camp. And we had all the usual activities you know, like kickball and swimming and all of that. And we also had a computer room and we had like a break that was computers. And uh, there was a counselor and I think his name was like Brian and he was a teenager. And they had these, I guess they were like DOS computers around or Windows 98. And they had all these emulators loaded up on them the Nesticle, there was one for Game Boy. Mm -hmm. And they pretty much just left us to play games on the computers for 45 minutes, an hour, whatever. And seeing that flooded back, seeing the video flooded back all those memories for me. <laughs> yeah, it was a, uh, it was, it was exciting, right? To be like, oh, I can play like a Nintendo game on my computer. Right. 
And that was way before I knew like what most of those series and games were before I could discover that on my own. Totally, totally. So in your researching and like gathering information for that show, what are some of the most interesting stories you've heard from people? Yeah, I mean, um, I think one of the coolest things uh, for that series was getting to talk to you, Zophar, who, for people who don't know, ran a site called Zophar's Domain, which was uh, one of the early big emulation sites in the late 90s. And um, it, they never hosted ROMs, but they basically uh, hosted emulators, uh, patches, news, just like everything that wasn't actually like a commercial video game file was on there. And sort of, I, I did an interview with him actually for that episode and not much of that made it into the video just because it sort of took a different direction. But I ended up posting that full interview on, on my blog and uh, it was just really cool to hear from someone who was like, you know, there at the time and involved in a big way. Because, you know, I was like online and I was like, you know, searching for ROMs and stuff. But this is someone who was like running a site uh, at a time when like that was a kind of a, not weird, but like an unusual thing to do, to run like a fairly, you know, major site um, and dedicated to emulation, something that like wasn't a huge topic at the time. And so just like getting to hear his perspective and like uh, how he sort of like made the decisions that he did was uh, was really fascinating. And um, yeah, like I said, I put that that full interview up. And um, so if people want to read that, that is uh, is there. But it's just been, it's cool to like, you know, to, to share that stuff with other people and to like get to hear from people who were maybe a little older than I was at that time and were kind of were sort of the people creating the things that back then that I was following or that I was using or, or browsing and to sort of ask them like hey like what was that like uh, to be on the other end of that and um he's a really good example of, of someone like that yeah I've definitely used his site more than once even today trying to look up patches for games and stuff so it's cool to see how long that legacy has lasted and to hear that side of the story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was also curious, have you played the game Hypnospace Outlaw? I haven't played it. It's one of those games that's been on my list for like a oh. long time. Um, but I know of it. Yeah, it's like sort of set in in that era. Um, and I, I definitely need to check it out because I feel like it would be really uh, like my thing for sure. Yes, absolutely. It was really, I feel like it immersed me in a world that I barely knew. And I mean, I would be curious to know what you think of it as far as like how it lines up with your research of how things were on that version of the internet. But it's a really great game. I love it. I highly recommend it. Yeah, I will have to check it out. So I think now's probably a good time to go to our musical break for the episode. We are going to be hearing again from Captain Groovatron. Merit, stay right there. The track is called Bramble Wars. And we'll be back. We're going to be talking about Land Party shortly.
Lisa, you just listened to The Bramble Wars by Captain Groovatron. And now we are back with Merritt Kay. So uh, Merritt, I wanted to ask you a bit about your upcoming book, Land Party. So I, I guess, can you like describe it in a couple sentences to our listeners? Uh, yeah, Land Party is a coffee table photo book of photos of land parties mainly from the 90s and early 2000s, some from a little later than that. Awesome. So how did you, what was your process for the book? How have you gone about gathering like research and photos and everything for it? Yeah, so um, the book kind of started off as a sort of a joke. Uh, I just sort of tweeted a little over a year ago that this was just something that I wanted to see. Like, ah, I want a coffee table book of land party photos because I don't even remember why I had been looking them up. But, you know, if you search online, you, you'll find some pretty good ones. And that tweet happened to just blow up. And I so I took that to some publishers and, uh, you know, they found people who were interested. And so uh, it kind of went from there. We... um you know, we started working on, on the design and I have been sourcing photos for on and off for about a year and uh, just sort of talking to people who, some of whom have like one or two photos that they happen to have saved, some of whom have these big archives oh, that wow. are just incredible to look through because they've, they've documented, you know, years and years of this stuff. and um. Yeah, and you know, part of it too is just getting some stories from people about their experiences. And there's some really great ones in the book just of, you know, people making these connections through these these things that have lasted them for decades in some cases. Wow. And yeah, you know, I'm still just sort of we're still finalizing things, but we did hit uh we got fully funded earlier this week. Great. And we are I think at a little over 120% funded right now. So that's amazing. That's very cool. I'm I'm so uh grateful for that. And at this point I'm I'm you know I'm sorting through submissions. Um uh, I'm trying to track down some people who m might on the rise to certain photos and um yeah, you know, getting um, some more written submissions and then working on um, some stuff that I'm writing for the book as well. So, yeah, it's um, it's been a little while in the making, but it is uh, finally happening. And, uh, you know, it's, it's cool to see something like this uh, come to fruition, especially when, you know, it, I don't do a lot of projects that take a very long time to 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 come into being so it can be kind of frustrating you know when you're like feeling like oh this is never actually gonna gonna be done um it's never gonna come out but it definitely is now so it's uh it's very exciting and um yeah that the fundraiser and fundraiser the um the crowdfunding campaign which is basically just pre-ordering the book is uh is still up and is up until I think like a couple weeks into December. That's great. Congratulations on the funding. That's yeah, no you. small feat. I feel like when I think about it, like some of the best ideas, maybe most of the best ideas start as jokes. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, a, a good idea is just sort of often just a joke that you've committed to. Right. So. I've had so many examples of that. <laughs> creative things where I just set it on yeah. a lark and then I did it and ended up being really proud of it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how a lot of things happen. I think maybe sometimes it's easy to forget that people think like, Oh, I have to go in with like a plan and I have to do this and this and this just doing things is <laughs> like, you know, maybe sometimes you'll fail or screw up, but then even if you do, you'll usually learn something and, just doing things is better, I think, than thinking about it forever and like thinking about, oh, is this a good idea? Like, can I do this? I don't know. Just do it. And then you'll find out. Right. You, you don't want to 
regret it. You don't want to feel like it's dwelling in your head and it never gets out. Right. Yeah. So, oh, you mentioned that, you know, you were writing some stuff for it. Are you able to talk about kind of what that is or is that under wraps? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, um, I'm writing an essay that's going to be in the book. A few other people are writing things as well. Like I mentioned, we have some stories just from contributors, but then we have a couple of of essays from uh, from like games industry people, um, and the stuff that I'm writing is uh, sort of you know I'm, I'm still nailing it down. I I actually gave a talk about the book uh, last summer, and I think some of the themes that I talked about in that are going to end up in it. But just talking about like how the sort of specific moment in time produced a land party. So like computers being getting much better at uh doing real-time 3d graphics um games like quake becoming more popular but then in the u.s at least there being this kind of bottleneck for internet connections where broadband wasn't really a thing i mean it had it was starting to come into being but it wasn't really um you know everywhere and so if especially if you're playing a game you know that like a first person shooter that needs really low latency you you know you want you want that kind of a, a network environment where you're not relying on connecting to someone over the internet in another part of the country and so it just became easier to bring all these computers to one space and do things that way um and it was such a specific moment in time because before that there wasn't really much need to because there just weren't games that were that benefited from that kind of real-time um, reaction uh, speed. And then after that, broadband starts becoming more popular. Uh, games start kind of disabling the option even to run private servers just because Publishers want to kind of control the, you know, own the experience, issue patches, do all this kinds of stuff like that, that you can't really do if you have private servers in the same way. Uh -huh. So, yeah, it's just like a weird moment in time that produced a lot of really <laughs> incredible photos. So um, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm still working out exactly, you know, like what the the written component of the book is going to be. but um mostly been focusing on just nailing down all of the photos for it over the last couple of weeks that's great that's it's so great so great you're putting that all in one place as a sort of a cohesive experience for people to relive yeah it's uh it's been really fun to to sort of look through all of the stuff that people have and I'm uh, I'm excited for it to be out in the world. It's going to be a little while longer after the crowdfunding phase is done. I believe it's going to be like late summer, fall 2023. But um, but yeah, it's it's going to be out in the world, and um, they're also doing the publisher is is doing some cool AI upscaling of the photos to just make them because a lot of these photos were taken on digital cameras that were pretty low resolution and aren't you know they these photos weren't taken to be printed right. so in some cases you know we're doing some tweaks and some work to make them uh to strike that balance between authenticity and okay i can actually tell like what's happening in this photo on a page yeah stuff people have been doing with upscaling is incredible it's it's wild that technology has really gotten a lot better in even just the last few years so um it's uh, i mean i mean i'm really grateful for this project in particular because again yeah there are all these photos that look okay on a screen um but you know are not going to look great on a page without a little bit of of tweaking definitely so in going through people's photos and stories are 
Like what kind of common threads would you say you found? Yeah, um, I mean, one is just the ways that people use the spaces that they had to uh, to their own ends. So, you know, land parties happened in like living rooms, garages, basements, sometimes community centers, churches, gymnasiums, uh, convention centers, but just finding like, it's great to just see photos with like, you know, monitors on TV trays in a living room or um, on a counter in a kitchen. Like just people were really cramming stuff into every possible surface that they could. And so that's, that's one that's just kind of immediately striking. I think when you look at these photos, another one is just the theme of connection that this is a, an era, you know, before social media. Um, it's before even cell phones were were super common. I mean, they existed, and um, and some people had them. But you know, I didn't have a cell phone until I was in college. Um, okay. So like, it was it wasn't like you know you were in middle school or high school around this time and, and had one. And nonetheless, though, like people are creating these connections at these events. And sometimes those are with people that you wouldn't expect at all. Like there were people in different um, social classes or in different cliques at a school who would be united by um, by playing StarCraft or, or Age of Empires or Quake or whatever. And that theme just like comes up over and over again, even in like contemporary videos at the time because that was sort of a thing too like the land party like frag compilation or like just video like people are making videos at the time of like of just land parties and some of them were getting covered on uh even on like tv shows and early internet uh shows and yeah people just talk about like yeah i've met people at these things that i wouldn't have met otherwise and it's a very different thing than playing a game online, right? Because you're in the same room with other people, you're face to face, you see that they're another human being. So the kind of like toxicity that I think a lot of people associate with online gaming, it didn't really exist in the same way. Like obviously it's not perfect. Um, a lot of these, a lot of land parties were like mainly men, like almost exclusively men and mainly like white men, which I think is more a function of of class than than race a lot of the time. Still like there were these like connections that were being made and um that I think is something that people still yearn for. Like the people I've talked to, you know, kind of mourn that. And I think people who weren't there are like look at those photos sometimes and are like, oh I wish I I wish I had been able to do that. Or I wish I could do that because their experiences of online games are like you know, you sit in your room on your own. Maybe you're talking to your friends over Discord or something, but a lot of the time you're just playing with people you, you don't know online and there's like zero communication. Um, so it's like, not it, it's a little trite to, to phrase it this way, but we have this incredible communications technology that didn't exist 20 years ago, but people feel more disconnected. Um, and I think this book like kind of speaks to that paradox a little bit. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's like you were saying before, it's we're very much in bubbles. It, it kind of reminds me, I mean, I doubt it's quite exactly the same thing, but pre-pandemic, I would go to a lot of fighting game tournaments. And yeah, they would be in like community centers or gyms and there'd be a lot of TVs and a lot of people, mostly men. Uh, my friend, my best friend was like, the only woman who ended up going to most of them. Yeah, it was a great way to interact with people. And I mean, necessary because those games require such precision, but also just a unique experience. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, is that like super similar to land part? What land part? Yeah. Or? I mean, I think pre pandemic fighting game community stuff is probably the closest thing to uh to land uh parties in the contemporary era and obviously the pandemic threw a lot of that stuff into chaos but yeah the fighting community is one where 
like maybe even more so than uh, than a lot of first person games. Like latency is so so important to the point that you know there have been whole uh, net codes developed right. to to address these issues for fighting games. And so it would make sense that you would that the you know pure or like real or official way to play those games would be in person. And anytime you you get people in person like that, it's it's going to be a communal thing, right? Because like you have a bunch of people who aren't playing at the moment, who are spectating, who are just like talking. And um it's yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not super topped into the FGC, so I don't know how they have recovered or or dealt with um, with uh, post lockdown uh, pandemic stuff. But I've always been fascinated by by those spaces because they do seem like one of the kind of last gaming spaces that and, you know they're coming out of arcades too, right? Which yeah. by definition were in-person experiences so like they, they're sort of like the one of the last bastions i feel like of in-person uh video gaming hmm. and um yeah i mean i think there's a whole other like there's potentially a whole other like book there um i, I might try to include some of the photos that kind of i don't know if you're aware of them but the kind of classic uh photos of people playing melty blood and uh and similar kind of anime games at uh, at evo and they're doing it just in like hotel room bathrooms or in like alleys on dumpsters what? and stuff yeah it's kind of before those games were um were like uh actual competition events at evo and sort of this is just um people playing them in their hotel rooms and stuff before that, but there are some pretty great photos. And uh, yeah, we'll see, maybe those will kind of make the cut. Um, I feel like it's kind of a different thing, but there is definite overlap. That, that's amazing. I'd love to see those at some point, but that's great to hear. So, I mean, that was all the questions I had about the book specifically. Was there anything else on that end you wanted to talk about? Um, no, I mean, that's, uh, that's basically the book. Um, like I said, the campaign is still up. So if people want to pre-order one, they can. Uh, I will say that uh, right now, this is the only way to get a copy of the book. Um, there is a possibility that it will be sold in stores after the initial crowdfunded orders go out. But that isn't guaranteed. So if this is something that you are seeing and you're like, I think I might want that, but I might, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe I'll pick it up, um, pick it up later. I would say like not no hand of pressure anybody, but um, if you, you know, if you definitely want it, then you should jump on the campaign uh, just because I can't personally guarantee that it will be in stores later on. I hope it will be. And I think it will be, but, but I can't say for sure. So um, right now, the crowdfunding, the volume um, crowdfunding campaign is, is the way to get it. Got it. Well, I will make sure to post a link to the campaign in the podcast description, which should be going up a week from this recording. Hopefully, hopefully there's enough time for people to jump awesome. in on yeah, it. Yeah, there should be, there should be time um, if Great. people you know, are listening to it uh, around when it comes out. Cool. So also, you know, as we, as I alluded to before, you have been the host of many podcasts yourself, uh, the K-Hole, the Channel F podcast, uh, a few others, names are escaping me. And I was curious, what are some of the most valuable things you've learned from hosting your own podcasts? God, yeah. Um, I think one thing that hosting a show teaches you is how to get people talking um which is something that i think people have trouble with sometimes but 
is such a valuable skill and not just like for podcasting, but just kind of for everyday life to how to get people kind of like talking about themselves and, um, you know, feeling comfortable answering questions and things like that. And uh, that also comes from my background in social research where a lot of that is asking people questions. So I had to develop that skill before I ever, you know, did, did any kind of like podcasting stuff, but, um, that's, that's definitely a big one. And then also just like having a plan, I feel like is, is important. Um, podcasting is like such a huge field at this point. Uh, even when I was started doing it in the mid 2010s, uh, early to the 2010s, it was already huge. And I think for a long time, I was just doing shows where I was like, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of about whatever. <laughs> like, it's, I just talk to people about whatever they're up to. And that can work, but it is so hard to, like, get momentum on something like that. And so just, like, having a concept or, like, a, a pitch for what you're trying to do is so helpful, not just for, like, trying to sell literally or figuratively other people uh the idea but for keeping yourself focused so i'm not doing any shows right now but i have been working on a few concepts for for new ones and i had one of the reasons that i haven't jumped in yet is because i'm like okay i need to like have develop a concept for something that uh that i'll feel excited about and that i can do on an ongoing basis um and, you know, like it can be as simple as it's a show about video games where I interview people every week. Um, but I'm still sort of like looking for for that. And also I've been really busy with like the book and with other stuff. But it's something I'd like to do again. And I, I really miss doing it. I love uh, I, I love getting to just talk to people um, on on podcasts. And uh, it's something, yeah, that I've been doing on and off for like almost a decade at this point so I feel like I know like a little bit about it by now and um yeah hopefully in the new year I'll uh, be kicking uh something new off and uh I don't know what that's gonna be yet but there are there are possibilities kind of fermenting right now yeah I definitely look forward to hearing about it it's you made a very good point about you know, a show having like a specific angle or focus that that's what draws people. I, I guess I should ask, uh, is there any advice you would have for me or for other podcast creators out there? <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, just like, I mean, having a, you know, having a, a clear concept is really important. Um, just not being shy about asking people to, to come on. I, um, I, yeah, I've had very good, good luck in the past and I've been really um, grateful that I have asked some pretty amazing people to come on uh, shows that I've done in the past and they have said yes. Um, so, you know, um, it's, it can feel very like, oh, I'm not like big enough to like, oh, I don't want to like be on the show or I don't want to ask someone to come on my show, but like, yeah. um, you know, like if you, you don't know that they'll say no until you ask, right? Like the worst thing that someone can say is no, like, and if they're going to say like, no, and frankly, how dare you for asking me, <laughs> then like they're an asshole and you didn't want them on anyway. Um, but yeah, I just remember I had Paula Tompkins on a show like a few years ago, which was really oh, cool. I think cool. he's like an amazing, uh, uh, guy and like a, a very funny comedian and, um, you know, and I, I think it's like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to ask, ugh, ugh, ugh. but like, you know, yeah, he said yes and he's on the show. So, um, yeah, don't be afraid to ask, uh, and uh, once you get, you know, you sort of start building up this, this body of work or like these, you know, guests that you've gotten on the show, then 
um, you can sort of point to that in the future and say, hey, but like, look, I've done 50 episodes or I've had so-and-so on or I've, you know, talked to these people. And I think that that can really help. And I don't know, I mean, I'm not sure, like, I haven't tried to sort of make a living in podcasting for a long time. And even when I was doing it, it was tough. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's a whole different kind of story. But just how do you monetize that? How do you make money off of that? But I think that has to kind of come second because, you know, you have to be having fun. And because if you're not, there's much easier ways to make money <laughs> than, than doing that. So, absolutely. Should be the passion first. All right. Well, thank you. And I'm glad I asked you because this has been really great. <laughs> Yeah, I'm happy to uh, to have been on. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. No problem. So I do have one last question, and that is, of course, this is the Pixel Pizza Podcast. Where is your favorite pizza place? Oh, wow. Where's my favorite pizza place? Um, I mean, I live in New York, so I'm kind of spoiled for choice. So it's hard to say um, because I feel like any New Yorkers listen to this, regardless of what I say, are going to judge me for it. The easy answer for me would be Roberta's in in Brooklyn, which I know it's like everyone knows about Roberta's, but that's because it's good. It's just like good, solid pizza. Um, and if you're ever in New York and you make it out to Brooklyn, I think there's maybe one in Manhattan now but um if you are uh uh in brooklyn then um yeah i'd say check out roberta's uh it's just extremely solid and uh kind of unfussy pizza awesome yeah that's what you want i am going to be in new york next month for the holidays because that's where i'm from originally so i will definitely make a point to seek out Roberta's. Nice. Uh, So yeah, uh, I think this about wraps up this week's Pixel Pizza. Thank you so much for joining me, Merritt. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, So where can people keep track of what you're up to? Yeah, so I am uh, on Twitter for as long as that site is still a going (laughs) concern. Um, (laughs) Merritt K on there. Uh, I also joined, um, um, what's it called? Hive. Uh, Hive, yes. Um, I'm Merrick K on there as well. And um, Merrick K9 on Instagram because Merrick K was taken there. And um, yeah, I have a blog, uh, otherstrangeness.com. And uh, yeah, that's about it for now. Uh, The book is um the link is kind of weird so but if you search land party book i'm sure you'll find it great well i wish you the best of luck with the book and uh very happy thanksgiving not to date this episode (laughs) (laughs) so uh, we are gonna be going off now with another final track from captain groovatron And this is called Full Circle, so enjoy that, and we will see you next time on Pixel Pizza.